Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I am, of course, incredibly excited today because we have a wonderful guest that has returned to share his knowledge on some incredible, incredible subjects. But today we are going to be talking about um, something slightly different. Even though we are going to touch on the Second World War, we're going to talk about just before the Second World War. And not in Europe, we're going over to the Pacific. So we have with us today Richard Frank, who is a historian and author. He has written some phenomenal books, especially his newest book, Tower of Skulls, A History of the Asia-Pacific War, Volume 1, which is out right now. And of course, Richard is returning. He has done some fabulous podcasts with us. So do go back and have a listen. But welcome, Richard. How are you? Um, very pleased to be back. I'm so, so excited. This is a subject that um, I studied a lot at university. Um, in Funny enough, two different classes of mine where we studied uh, China and then obviously studied the whole um, area of the Pacific. So I'm really lucky that I remember some of this. So um, let's get to it because this is some of this is actually we're going to be touching on some sensitive subjects here as well. Yes. So let's start with the first one. It's because it's a hot debate amongst historians. Did the Second World War start on the 1st of September 1939 when Germany invaded Poland? Or did it really start in the Pacific when Japan invaded China literally just a few years earlier in 1937? So let's start with a bit of background history to the relationship between Japan and China. Right. Uh, let me start off by pointing out that uh, the situation we're in now with respect to what happened in China in World War II, is very analogous to what we've gone through with respect to the Soviet Union. And that's in the sense that uh, during the war and for after the war, we had very little access to really much archival information from the Soviet Union. A lot of the perception about what happened was actually drafted by the Germans. And when we finally did get, in mainly the, starting in the 90s, some reasonable access to Soviet archives, it just totally changed the picture with respect to what actually had happened on the Eastern Front, although there's obviously still areas that you know, people can write and debate about. Uh, and we're in much the same situation with respect to China, because for decades after the war, there was no uh, reasonable access to archival information. And then starting from the 80s and then and really more from the 90s, in the last 15 years or so, we've gained access to a lot more archival information, not only uh, uh, from the People's Republic of China, 
but also from Taiwan, and most especially the diaries of the gentleman who is known in history as Zhang Kai-shek, Generalissimo Zhang Kai-shek, who led the nationalists in China. So when I talk about this stuff, what I think some of your viewers who are familiar with the older history are probably going to be scratching their heads and saying, well, where is this coming from? Well, that's where this stuff is, is coming from now. So uh, let me just touch on this issue of, you know, when did the Second World War begin? Um, at least the way I, I see it, I think that the regional war in the Asia-Pacific region clearly started, uh, or properly should be viewed as starting from July 1937, from what's been called the Marco Polo Bridge incident. Uh, the European phase uh, still, I think, we appropriately should deem that to be September 39 when Hitler attacked Poland. Uh, these two phases, in my view, have a very interesting relationships. Sometimes they're important connections, sometimes they're not. And they really became fused together, in, in my view, in the second half of 1941. So I think, though, if we view it as these two regional wars that eventually merged into this one global war, and look at it that way, we can say, okay, the Second World War began in Asia in July 37, began in Europe in September 39. That is an incredible answer, and I love that answer. And you're not actually, funny enough, the first historian to come on our podcast and say this to us. So I think we're going to – I really like the way that's explained, and I think I'm going to stick with that uh, in my career. So let's let's move on. So we've got the whole idea. We've got the background information. Let's talk about 1937. So what was the situation like in China at that point? Well, that, that really gets a lot to what we know now versus what we sort of thought, or at least the, the sort of narrative that had become you know, implanted during the war and afterward. And, and during the war, and there tended to be, then in the post-war period, this notion that somehow China was already in sort of this uh, either low-level uh, or higher-level civil war between the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek on one side and the communists under Mao Zedong uh, on the other side. And what we know now is China in 1937 was what I called a fractured state. Uh, Japan had occupied Manchuria in 1931-32. It had sought in various means to dominate some of the provinces heading down towards the Great Wall in the years thereafter until 1937. And when uh, the war really became full tilt in 1937, the area that Japan did not occupy was really should be viewed as this great patchwork of regional and local power brokers. And the most important of these by far at that point was the nationalist area under Chiang Kai-shek. And this was basically the seven provinces in the the lower Yangtze Valley. It had about 170 million people in population. It was the most economically advanced uh, and modern part of China. Uh, The 170 million people indicated that Chiang at that point had control of a slightly over a third of the total Chinese population, which is now pitched usually at about 450 million. I can't emphasize enough that outside of that area that he controlled, again, there was this enormous patchwork of uh, various regional uh, factional leaders uh, and local leaders. And uh, Mao Zedong and the Chinese Communists had just come off the Long March, and they had ended up in a, even by Chinese sense, very impoverished part of northwest China, and the area that Mao actually had control of in July 1937 had a population of about 1.45 million people, which is not 3% of China's population. It's three-tenths of 1% of China's population at that time. And the Red Army 
uh, Chinese Red Army at that time had about 1.5% of all Chinese under arms. So one of the most fundamental aspects about our new history, you have to understand, is this incredibly low starting point that the Chinese communists were at in 1937. And one of the most amazing parts of the story is how they are going to build up from that point to where they actually will dominate China by 1949, which, as one historian pointed out, would have been almost inconceivable to anyone in 1937 that the Chinese communists would, in fact, dominate China within 12 years. I mean, the rumours or the myth is, is that Mao Zedong actually had more people than he actually did, didn't he? Well, yeah, well, it, it gets sort of, when you get into the numbers in China during the Second World War, it gets messy very quickly or whatever here. Uh, they, they held out and they, they built up quickly, but still, they're still at a, a very low level for the first several years of the war. We, we can talk more about the military participation in a minute. What's, uh, what's interesting though is that basically what, what Zhang had been doing was that he had not been, uh, resistant to the notion he was going to have to fight the Japanese. After the Japanese seized Manchuria, he realized there was going to have to be a showdown with Japan in order to restore Chinese sovereignty. Now what Zhang did understand far better than many of his critics was just how titanic that undertaking was going to be against a modernized, westernized, uh, fully mobilized imperial Japan versus the fractured state that China was in. And he bided his time from 31 to 37, trying to build up his own army as well as make lots of other arrangements. We have a lot of documentary evidence now showing that this is what was going on. It was not that he was not intending to fight the Japanese. It was that he understood how dramatic and desperate that fight was going to be. He gave a speech in, in late 1934 saying, that, you know, we're going to be at war with Japan in a thousand days. He was off by 43 days to when they were actually going to be in full scale fighting. 43 days, that's impressive. That's an actual amazing prediction. Yes, it is. And and his diaries have lots of... That's one thing that uh, certainly one of my colleagues was telling me that he was talking with a historian from the PRC who said that once you actually started reading Zhang's diaries, he said it just totally changed the picture entirely about Zhang. He had a lot of problems, a lot of challenges. He had some clearly some major failings. But he comes across as being a, a lot more insightful and competent in those diaries than had been kind of the standard narrative that he was sort of this bumbling, incompetent uh, fool who you know had to be dragged into the war. Okay, so the Marco Polo Bridge incident. Uh, tell us about it. And how does this become pretty much the start of the Sino-Japanese War? That's an interesting question because there had actually been a lot of uh, a lot of these little incidents between the Japanese and Chinese over the years. And once again, uh, Zhang kept trying to bide his time and, 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 you know, to build up for the showdown war and avoiding turning something, a local uh, conflict like that into a major war. But in 1937, uh, I think two, two things were dominant in, in Zhang's mind. First of all, it was the sense that he had sort of run out of the time on the patience he could expect from the people he had to have to support him. That was number one. Number two was, if he permitted the Japanese to fully dominate the area around Beijing, that would put the Japanese within dangerous striking range of of Shang's own base area. So at that moment, he decided that he could no longer uh, forestall going into the war. Now, what's, what's important, though, is that having recognized that he couldn't put off a war any longer, he also recognized that the place he didn't want to fight 
was up in northern China around Beijing. Uh, that area of the terrain was open. It gave it, it magnified every advantage the Japanese had in mobility and air power. Uh, a lot of the much more sophisticated military uh, operational and tactical sense. And so Zhang decided that if we're going to now go into full tilt war, the place to do this is in Shanghai, where this enormous uh, urban labyrinth would magnify the uh, advantages of Chinese strong in numbers and small arms and, and weak in just about everything else. So that's, that's basically the decision-making process and how the Marco Polo Bridge incident got going. Now, let me follow on from that. What, what you also have to understand from the Japanese standpoint and from actually the whole rest of the world standpoint was that China for a full century from the Opium Wars from about 1839, 1840 onward, no central Chinese government had managed to sustain a conflict against a westernized power for more than a few months or at most a year for a century. Everyone expected that, well, even if the Chinese put up a show and put on a fight, it'll only go on for a few weeks or at most a few months, the Chinese will be defeated and have to be supplicants to whatever Japan's going to issue out. And the Japanese thought this, the whole rest of the world thought this. Uh, the fact that Chiang was able to sustain, and the Chinese were able to sustain resistance for eight years was something that no one in 1937 would have projected. So during the Marco Polo Bridge incident, where were the communists? Well, they're they're mainly off in northwest China. That one of the issues you have to bear, one of the things you have to bear in mind is we know now uh, a lot more about their situation. Uh, historian I much admire, uh, Jay Taylor from Harvard, uh, wrote a uh, recent and much a much admired biography of Zhang. And one of uh, his uh, insightful things was to go to Moscow, where the archives of what was then called the Communist uh, International or Comintern were kept, because the Chinese Communist Party, like all good communist parties at that time, had to sort of turn in their uh, yearly or, or uh, frequent reports to the Comintern about what, what they've been doing and whatever here. So Taylor found a report the Chinese communists had submitted to Moscow, uh, after about the first two years of the war, this is about August of uh, 39. And at that point, that report says, well, Chinese military casualties up to that point totaled 1 million. And the number that have been sustained by Red Army forces were 31,000, which is like 3%. Uh, there was a parallel report in 19, December 1944 in which the Red Army losses were put up at about 100,000, which at that point would be roughly between 3 and 5% of the total uh, Chinese military casualties. Now, this is not to say that the Chinese communists are not contributing anything, but the notion that they were doing all the fighting and the nationalists and the coalition that Shang is leading was not, I, I think that's completely blown away now by what we have in the archives. I mean, the propaganda coming out from the Red Army is just incredible at that point, isn't it? Yes, well, it, and it was very it was very effective in many ways, or whatever here. Um, we can, we can get into reasons. Clearly, uh, when we talk about the blockade, I think that'll get into the question about what what the Chinese were actually capable of doing over those eight years. Uh, because you have to understand uh, that one of the aspects about the war, which is least commented upon, but is in, in effect one of the most important, is this uh, Japanese naval blockade of China. Okay, let's go back to the invasion because we are going to touch on the blockade. We've got a couple of other things we're going to touch okay. on. Let's go back to um, to the invasion. So the Japanese invade. Where does that invasion start from? 
festival? Well, they, they, they first start, uh, they build up their forces in North China around uh, Beijing and that whole area. And they're going to uh, drive columns down along the rail lines. That's logistically, that was what the Japanese had to rely upon for conventional operations was uh, driving uh, along rail lines. That was the only way you could sustain forces. Uh, and they, they occupy some more territory. Uh, however, this is, this is territory, bear in mind, that's, that's, uh, in the hands of some of these regional power brokers, not, this is not Shanghai Shek's power base or whatever here that the Japanese are, uh, rolling over in, in North China. Uh, and the Japanese are pretty successful, but they, they, you know, they think that if they just press a little bit, uh, the Chinese are going to fold up. And of course that turns out to be not true. So they end up making their way at this point to Shanghai. Talk us through right. what happens in Shanghai. Well, Shanghai becomes, uh, it's, it's this incredible battle that goes from August to November 1937. And when the battle begins, of course, as I indicated, no one expects the Chinese to hold out for very long. And the battle will go on first day by day, then week by week, by month by month. By, four, by the time it's over in November, uh, there literally are a million troops, combatants who participate in the, in the struggle around Shanghai. Uh, three quarters of them are Chinese, about 750,000, and about uh, 250,000 are Japanese. And there's this colossal struggle through uh, Shanghai does tremendous, obvious damage to the, the city. Uh, and what's interesting about it, though, uh, and this recent movie, The 800, gets into this, is that uh, Chinese sovereignty had been shredded in, in Shanghai. And there were the international settlement and the French settlement. And one of the curious facets of this is that uh, from these international settlements, you have typically Westerners uh, and some Chinese as well with uh, still or motion picture cameras taking uh, pictures of, of the fighting that's going on. And uh, it's very graphic. And uh, the Japanese are uh, on very bad behavior. And you get a lot of images coming out of that, which are going to sicken the whole world, uh, even before we get to, to Nanjing. So the battle goes on, and, and there's this sort of the black humor aspect of it. That At, at first, uh, everyone expects the Japanese to swiftly uh, take Shanghai. And, of course, the, the battle goes on and on and on. And this New York Times reporter is speaking to this Japanese officer who is, uh, we would now call them sort of the spin doctor, trying to explain things away. And the New York Times reporter says, well, well, how come uh, you basically haven't already uh, kicked the Chinese out of Shanghai? And the Japanese uh, officer says, well, the problem is the Chinese know so little of tactics, they don't know when to retreat. So that's his explanation for why the battle keeps going on. But in the end, Shang admits later that he makes a mistake. He keeps the battle going on longer than he probably should have after the Japanese are gaining the upper hand and the, the better course would have been to start pulling his forces out. He doesn't, and they sustain heavy losses, including his some of his best troops uh, in that fight in Shanghai. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
it. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, we're going to move on to a subject. Um, we're only going to touch on this subject because I think it does completely deserves its own podcast. But after the uh, attack on Shanghai, they defeat the Chinese at Shanghai and then they start to move north. Right. Towards Nanking, Nanjing, whichever way you want to say it, I'm, I'm right. going to do the, the, the British way because, uh, as, as you do, um, that to be honest, I'm struggling to put my words together for this question because it is one of the most horrific things I have ever read about. And I've studied some incredibly dark subjects. I think this one blows it all out of the water. So tell us what happened. Well, the first thing you have to understand is that Nanjing was the capital city for the nationalists in Shanghai Shack. That was and the, the Japanese, after uh, the triumph in Shanghai, there had been, actually because of the intensity of the fighting in Shanghai, there was a faction within the Japanese leadership that basically wanted to stop. Uh, but uh, once, typically of, of the Imperial Army, which was uh, in many ways out of control, uh, the field commanders in, in China insisted on driving on to Nanjing in the belief that if they if they took Nanjing, that would be sort of the final blow that the Chinese would then would fold up and quit. So uh, the, the problems are two. The first of which was that uh, Tokyo issues this secret order in August of 1937 that advises their field commanders that uh, all the international agreements that Japan has entered into about the rules of conduct in warfare uh, don't apply against the Chinese. And the second thing is the Japanese uh, are unable to provide their troops with food. So the Japanese forces are compelled to live off the land, which is a sure recipe for all kinds of abuse, in this drive towards Nanjing. And then they get to Nanjing, and uh, they eventually flow into the city, and there's this horrendous amount of uh, slaughter of um, the Chinese, uh, a large number of the Chinese forces which are captured are summarily executed at that point. Uh, and a very large number of the civilian population is murdered. And of course, there's this carnival of uh, rape and abuse of uh, the Chinese uh, non-combatants in Nanjing, which be- becomes uh, infamous. Um, so it's, uh, it is an absolutely horrendous uh, episode. And there's still lots of controversies about you know, how do you define how long the rape of Nanjing went on, uh, and where was it located geographically, uh, and do you count? There's this also this horrendous uh, swath of land between Shanghai and Nanjing in which the Japanese forces are doing pretty awful things as they just march towards Nanjing. And there's a widespread expectation after Nanjing Falls in the, in the outside world that this is, this is going to be it. The Chinese are now going to fold up, but they don't. I mean... 
for me, what they do in two weeks, I mean, you and I, before we started this podcast, um, agreed on a, on a rough number of, uh, between 150,000 to 200,000 people who pretty much in about two weeks get massacred. And I did mention that what the Germans did is, was a factory of death. They used gas chambers at a certain point. Obviously before that, they were shooting people. What the Japanese did was a whole different level to what happened in Europe. They were physically murdering these people. And I just want to throw something in. Um, I read a fantastic book by Iris Chang about the rape of Nanking. And in her book, she actually, I'm not going to go into it because obviously we're going to do a separate podcast on this. But please, if anybody's interested, do pick up the book because it goes into absolute detail of what happened to these innocent people over a two-week period. This this gets to an, another thing. Uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Thomas Doherty of Brandeis uh, University, uh, has made a very extensive study of newsreels. Um, most Americans went to the movies twice a week in the 30s and 40s, and there was a newsreel with every main feature. And what uh, uh, Tom pointed out was that he'd been through all this stuff, and one of the things that was striking to him was that prior to Pearl Harbor, uh, if you had been watching those newsreels, uh, you had coming out of China these scenes, and exactly as you said, it was, it was, it wasn't sort of like looking at distant explosions like in Europe or something like that. It was lots of incredibly viscerally churning images of, of what we call hand killing. I mean, up close, very personal shooting Chinese soldiers in the back of the head and watch the bodies flip forward. The Germans basically avoided letting anyone else shoot those kind of scenes, and the Japanese were, uh, unable to control the access of uh, cameras, Chinese and Western or whatever they were being shown. And it really had a very fundamental impact on American attitudes. Americans were were very much riled up about Japan before Pearl Harbor, and it was all related to what was going on in China and the images they were seeing coming out of China. Let's move on from the subject. Um, let's talk about the losses between, because we have touched on this, um, the losses between the communists and the nationalists. Overall, by this point, because we spoke about it a, a little bit earlier, about the earlier losses, are the communists having higher losses than the nationalists? Where does this all kind of fall into the narrative? I think based on the evidence we have now, it's, it's clear that in terms of uh, military casualties, uh, the, the nationalist segment were were carrying a very heavy burden, especially early in the war, uh, very heavy losses. They were very much in the fight. Now, what, what complicates this thing, uh, and everything gets complicated in China, uh, is that it's important to understand that what, what Chiang Kai-shek was leading was effectively a coalition. And there were regional uh, leaders that were very uh, willing to uh, subordinate their forces to Chiang's direction. Uh, that carried on a major burden during the war also. Uh, the Chinese communists uh, worked far more diligently at expanding their political control across northern China, and they were able to do so during the war. Uh, the, an, an illustrative point came when uh, Germany attacked the Soviet Union in June 1941, and Stalin essentially uh, tried to order Mao uh, that the Chinese communist forces should... Uh, uh, step up their military actions against the Japanese. And, and Mao turned him down and said, basically, we, we simply don't have 
We don't have the men. We don't have the ammunition. We don't have the weapons to take on the Japanese in conventional fighting. And the Chinese communists also spent a large part of their military effort fighting sort of collaborationist forces that the Japanese had stood up to help them control these large areas of China that they were, they were, they now ostensibly had control of, but did not practically have control of. The Japanese typically in the areas that they occupied, they controlled the major cities and some of the communication lines like the rail lines, but the vast areas of the rural countryside were not really under effective Japanese control. And in, in a lot of areas were not under anyone's control. You had bandits and, and groups roaming around. So that once again, the, the, the picture in China uh, during World War II is, is extremely complex uh, at any given moment. But getting back to your basic point, I, I think it's very clear that the notion that nationalists were, you know, not doing much of anything, the communists were doing all the fighting, just won't hold water now based on what we know. I think we should make it a little bit more complicated with our next question. <laughs> Only because at this point, uh, the Japanese have not, they haven't taken the whole of China, have they? No, well, you know, when you look at, uh, and I've, I, I have some maps I use in, in presentations. When you look at the areas, uh, and it, typically we, we color them red on the map showing Japanese occupation, it actually does not look like that much of the territory of China. Uh, but when you understand the demographics of where the great bulk of the population lived, the Japanese do occupy areas that the estimate that was made after the war was that at one point or another, Japanese had within their control or their area like 266 million people out of the total population of like, like I said, like 450 million. So they have, you know, more than half the total population in areas that they ostensibly at least have control of. Uh, but when you look, when you, like I said, again, if you, if you look at the typical map just showing the areas they occupy, you don't get that sense because it doesn't, the maps don't take in they very dense demographics, which which are along the coastal areas, and particularly along the Yellow and the Yangtze rivers. So, what did the Japanese do? Because now they can't take the whole of China, they've got to do something. Right. Well, actually, what, there's a there's a further long major campaign in 1938 uh, involving the Wuhan cities, which you've recently obviously heard a lot about, and that's where Zhang had, had displaced his military headquarters and a large part of his government after Nanjing fell, or when Nanjing was falling. And uh, interestingly enough, at, at the end of that 1938 campaign, where the Japanese do finally get to the Wuhan cities, uh, at Tokyo, in the, it's a secret war diary of the Imperial Army, or whatever, however you want to term this, uh, what they recognize at that point, and they, they write this out, is that basically they realize they cannot dictate an end of the war in China by military means alone. It's beyond their capabilities to do so. They're now in a, in a quagmire. And that's that's how the war is going to go on now for the next basically about six years uh, with relatively little changes of the frontage compared to what goes on from 37 to 38. Uh, there's going to be a major campaign by the Japanese in 1944 called Ichigo, which is going to change things a good deal. Uh, but there's this quagmire that still the fighting goes on. There's still significant casualties on the Chinese side, certainly. It will go on for the next six years. So talk, talk to us through this blockade, because that's what they actually end up doing, don't they? Right. Well, they they actually started employing the blockade right from the start in 1937. And uh, to me, this was sort of one of the 
big uh, revelations in this uh, new scholarship because as much as been written about what happened in China, talk, mostly talking about the land campaigns, uh, a good deal about the air campaigns, the Japanese bombing, and then uh, from the American side, uh, uh, the 14th Air Force and the Flying Tigers and whatever here. But what actually happens, which is so important, is this. The Japanese impose this uh, blockade, which they gradually extend. It, they don't seal off the Chinese coast immediately, but they gradually extend it in 1937-1938. It's coupled with uh, uh, campaigns uh, up the Yangtze River Valley. And uh, they eventually install a very firm blockade. And this has a, a, a tremendous effect on China. First of all, it cuts off the, most of the importation of, of munitions, which the Chinese definitely need, because they just don't have the uh, raw material or industrial base to supply a really full-scale modern war, especially after they've been driven out of the base area. Secondly, it drives Zhang out of his base area into the hinterland, uh, and this severely affects his dominant position uh, within all these regional local power brokers. Plus, Zhang's army has been severely damaged by the fighting they've done in 3738, and its intimidation value has gone down. Uh, it also cuts off the import of food, as one of our distinguished historians, uh, Hans van der Ven of Cambridge University, points out that people tend to think the Chinese were self-sufficient in food, but point of fact, 1937, they were importing, especially in the coastal areas, between 10 and 20% of the food supplies in China. And food security is going to be a huge issue, including this enormous famine in 1943. So it does that. But the, but the capstone, the most dramatic effect of the blockade is this. The Chinese central government have been set up on a basis that preceded Zhang's regime by a century, that the principal source of revenue to the central government was customs duties. And by imposing that blockade and then occupying those ports and then driving inland, the Japanese basically enormously reduced any amount of customs duties flowing to the central government. In addition to this, they overran areas which provided some of the other parts of the tax base. So the revenues going to the national government collapsed by between two-thirds and 75% as a result of the blockade and these actions of the Japanese. How do you make war without money? Well, the answer is you really can't. And what the nationalists end up doing is they begin uh, printing money. And this is going to unleash inflation, which has been analogized, I think, very effectively like leukemia. And this is going to have a tremendous downstream effect not only on what goes on between 37 and 45, but it's going to be a very dire impact on the standing of the nationalist government. It's an incredible incentive to uh, uh, corruption also. And it has a direct, direct effect on the fact that everyone uh, who's uh, on a fixed government salary, like a soldier or a, a nationalist civil servant, uh, the buying power of their uh, income is dramatically decreasing, which is going to lead to all kinds of corruption and acti activities like that. So this impact of this blockade uh, on China, not only the wartime period, but upon the fate of Zhang's government is just huge. Do you think it was actually successful? Well, you know, it's, it's, it, it, the reason I'm smiling is, is this. One of the primary motivations that Japan got into this war with China was because they were they were afraid that China was going to go communist, right? That was 
a, a key point that the Imperial Army officers were, were uh, very heavily uh, influenced by it in making the decisions. And the supreme irony is, of course, that uh, the Japanese war in China is eventually going to primarily be the, one of the, if not the only, the major reason why Zhang's government is going to fall and the communists are going to take over. Uh, Mao Zedong was quite forthcoming about this many times after the war, including most famously in 1972 to a Japanese prime minister. And Mao said, well, you know, if Japan had not waged this war in China from 1937, I don't think the I and the communists would ever have dominated China. I mean, that, that's from Mao Zedong. That's not from, you know, Chiang Kai-shek or the nationalist side. That's Mao saying that the Japanese intervention is the critical issue, the critical blow that's going to lead to Mao's dominance of China. I mean, the Japanese could have said to Chiang Kai-shek, hey, we're going to help you to defeat the communists. I mean, they could have just done that instead of invading China, couldn't they? Well, that, that's, a, that's another very interesting point because there was a lot of... Uh, a lot of concern, uh, you know, that, that, you know, in effect that, that Zhang and the, and the Japanese had one, one thing in common. They both wanted to suppress and defeat the communists. So Zhang, uh, theoretically at least, had a powerful incentive to, uh, be, in, become an ally, uh, with the Japanese. But, uh, you know, as, as I indicated in, the, in these diary issues, Zhang was ultimately a, a great Chinese patriot nationalist. He, he, and he he believed that you couldn't negotiate with the Japanese and maintain uh, China's uh, independence and sovereignty. There was no no dealing with them. And even though he recognized it was obvious that you know there was a a logical reason why he should ally himself with the Japanese, he steadfastly refused anything like that. There were some side conversations or whatever here uh, between the nationalists and the Japanese, but. Uh, they never, they never amounted to any attempt by Zhang to try to reach an agreement with the Japanese to turn both of them to turn on the, the Chinese communists. I'm curious. Let's move just a few years into the future, so into 1939. Did how did the Japanese react to the start of the Second World War in Europe? Because they were allies of Germany, weren't they? Yes. Well, it had it had a huge effect upon the Japanese. They. Uh, they were, they became, especially not just in 39, but especially after that run of German successes in 1940, where Hitler overruns almost all of Western Europe. Um, the British are hanging on by their eye teeth uh, during the Battle of Britain. And from the Japanese military standpoint, uh, the Germans look like the new great military colossus that uh, is uh, now dominant. And the, the, the Germans, uh, if you get into the detail, one of the things you, I talk about in this book and in the future book is that when you get into the details, it's incredible how the Germans are triumphant virtually no matter what the odds are. And that's what impresses the Japanese, is that basically they don't care about talking about larger industrial might and this, that, and the other, that the Germans are such supreme warriors, they're going to win. And that's that's an incredible motivator on the Japanese side for all of their adventurism after 1939 that they've enlisted with the Germans and the Germans are going to, you know, knock out not only the Western Europe, they're going to knock out the Brits and eventually they think they're going to knock out the Soviets and the Japanese are going to have a free reign in, in Asia because of that. So did the Japanese, this is a key question, did the Japanese take advantage of what was happening in Europe? 
Oh, yes, right, very much so. Uh, for, for example, after France falls, uh, one of the first things that happens is the Japanese start putting enormous pressure on the government of uh, French Indochina, the, which is a Vichyite government at that point. Uh, and they, what they want is they want the uh, French Indochina to cut off uh, this pipeline into China, which the Japanese believe correctly is at least providing some uh, route for munitions to reach the Chinese. And uh, it's uh, it leads to this incredible episode where uh, they're applying diplomatic pressure, and that's the official government policy. And the, and the French are actually you know, playing a very weak hand about as well as they possibly could. And these local commanders in China, plus the operations officer of the Imperial Army, uh, and he comes down from Tokyo with this forged order. I mean, you just can't imagine this happening in, say, the British or American, even the Soviet Army. And they launch this attack across the international border into French Indochina, and for a while keep going despite orders from Tokyo telling them to cease and desist. Uh, but the Japanese, you know, understand that the French are so weak and there's they, no, not going to be any action by the, by the French to deal with this. But this episode, uh, further evidence of this just incredibly dysfunctional uh, Japanese leadership is th- this officer who has forged this order, supposedly of imperial headquarters, to, you know, telling these guys to attack French Indochina. Well, he's sacked, but then he comes back. Again, as an advisor to Hideki Tojo, Tojo is the uh, uh, prime minister of, of Japan. And that's what sort of incredible dysfunction you have going on in terms of uh, Japanese military and, and the civilian government. Richard, thank you so much. That was so enlightening and so eloquently put this whole terrible part of the Second World War that we really don't talk much about at all. So I'm saying thank you from our listeners. Thank you from me. But before we do go, can you just remind everybody the name of your book and where they can get hold of it? Right. Well, then uh, the title of the book is uh, Tower of Skulls, A History of the Asia-Pacific War. And this is volume one. It goes from 1937 to May of 1942. There'll be two more volumes covering the mid-period mid of the, what we call the Pacific War. And the third volume is going to cover not only the events up to the end of the war in 1945, but into the post-war period, tying together how the impact of that war uh, shapes the world we live in today. And it's uh, it's available in uh, bookstores, uh, on Amazon, uh, and many online uh, dealers at this time. So I'd uh, be very happy if uh, you go out and buy a copy. Thank you. Thank you so much again. Join us tomorrow when Jonathan Eaton will be with us to talk all about his new book on the Roman army. It's a really good chat, so don't miss it. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 